Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have on the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as a marketing executive and the former founder of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. Welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast. Today, Paloma Medina joins us, who is a TEDx speaker, management trainer, coach, and entrepreneur. She has 10 years of experience merging the neuropsychology of work and life to support leaders and managers in building high-performance and human-centered workplaces. Her work focuses on daily details, policies, and habits that lead to organizational and individual well-being. For the past five years, her work has further emphasized the intersection of leadership, equality and diversity, humor, and life-affirming productivity. In her past lives, Paloma was a performance coach, healthcare administrator, and founder of companies such as the wonderful 1111 Supply, which was an office supply and productivity store in Portland, Oregon. Paloma's clients represent a wide cross-section of industries from homeless healthcare teams to rapidly scaling tech companies that you may have heard of, such as Etsy and Airbnb, all of which share a very common thread, which is a commitment to be values aligned and walk the talk of supporting the whole employee. Today, we're going to discuss the psychology of leaders and diversity and equity and inclusion, DEI. And I am so honored and thrilled to have you here. Welcome, Paloma. Thank you for having me. So good to be here. Wonderful. Well, I'd love for you to start and just tell everybody kind of your version of the story of who you are and your background and a little bit about what you do. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's everything you mentioned. Yes. And yes. And yes. I think the um, one thing I like to point out is some people are like, oh, cool. You talk so much about neuropsychology. You must be a neuropsychologist. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, I'm just a huge fan. At some point I started researching it um, back mostly when I was a performance improvement coach for these healthcare clinics. So Either they were serving primarily houseless patients or HIV positive patients and they're having a hard time with performance. And I started, I was just on my own reading about neuropsychology and um, and just psychology in general and started kind of sharing some of my insights and lessons that I was picking up from all these books with the teams and the teams just really thrived, like the little bit that I provided. And so that's really where my background in this is. It's mostly from like a fandom perspective, not not because um, my my actual master's degree is in something called master's uh, in public administration, which is a very boring term for I would have to say a, an often very boring <laughs> degree. Um, but I just I couldn't help it. Like I always, even through my master's degree, I was um, still sneaking in all the psychology courses I could and all the like social anthropology courses I could, and that's where that stuff informs a lot of my work. Uh, versus just, um, I don't know, some of the more classic performance improvement things like Lean or Six Sigma, things like that, that some of some folks might know more about. But yeah. Yeah. I love that you're such a fan of neuropsychology. I have, I think that's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of you is because it also fascinates me so much. And I, I mean, I've gotten really deep in the last like couple of years on neuroplasticity and just understanding how our brains work and how when yeah. we know how our brains work, we can kind of shift certain things to be high performing or to accomplish certain goals or, you know, change our lives in ways that we desire. So yeah. it's so fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, but I'd love for you maybe to give someone, you know, who's listening, who's like brand new to this, kind of what is sort of the high level overview of neuropsychology? Yeah, I mean, I think classically neuropsychology is um, folks that are incredibly, you know, super trained. They go through a lot of schooling to understand uh, how neurological diseases or accidents or injuries technically affect someone's psychology. So someone's mood, um, someone's behavioral and or like habitual changes, that kind of thing. It's like a very, very classic neuropsychology, um, really where it started. And I think there's a whole wing of folks 
that they don't call it this, but that's kind of how I, what I call it. Like it's more like positive neuropsychology or like performance neuropsychology, which is not so much the like how does um, when something goes wrong with neurology, it's more of like how can we use what we know about our neurology to intentionally improve how our emotions or um, emotional states or stress levels uh, or cognitive performance. Uh, yeah, how can we do that? And so that that is more my wing of it versus, you know, I don't know a ton about um, if you get an you know, some kind of brain accident, what happens? It's more like, how can we use this really cool, the newest research, and it's a very new field still, to maybe support the kinds of lives we want to lead and the, be like the kinds of leaders and managers that we want to be, since my main thing is supporting managers and leaders. So yeah, that's a really quick, rough and dirty, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that was wonderful. And you use one of my favorite words, which is intentionality. Yeah. And so really thinking about from a leadership perspective, if you're an entrepreneur or leader in a company, I mean, I think intentionality is something that goes hand in hand with success. And I think it's something that's not spoken about as much. Um, but I'd love to know, like from your standpoint as being someone that's been in leadership development for a while, kind of what has been the model in the past and how is this approach that you're using around neuropsychology kind of elevating that experience? Yeah. I mean, one very huge, um, almost like paradigm that exists, um, that existed a long time in leadership development, and I would say still somehow sticks around, is that leadership development is like fully, like leader, leadership is fully intuitive. It's just like vibing. It's like a talent. Some people just have it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Neuropsychology, I think it's helped us um, ap approach leadership development in two different ways. One is how can we help leaders understand, almost like demystify their teams and the individuals they support, right, and that they lead. Um, so rather than just being like, hey, you're um, – your report is not performing well. What do you do? And they're just like, well, I'm just, you know, what am I vibing? What? Am, how am I going to give this feedback? Like the old model of just somehow you just make it up as you go um, without mm -hmm. actually understanding what are all the factors that might be happening in this person that will actually help you troubleshoot a little faster and thus make better decisions about how you support them or how you coach them onto a different project, right? Or a different job or whatever. How do you make decisions better? Because there's all these cool things. So one thing is when I train managers on something like these things called the six core needs, which are a ton of uh, neurology and psychology research that shows that humans are really driven to focus on, scan for, and then protect these six core needs. And if one of them is threatened, they will go like neurologically, threat systems go up. And what does that look like? And how do you know that? You know, all these different things. And so when I teach a manager, for example, hey, this is neuropsychologically the things that matter to your humans, and these are the ways that they might respond if those feel threatened, pause, any thoughts? And every time, manager like, oh my God, finally, this one thing that happened makes sense. It makes sense why this one person did this or did that, and now I can just troubleshoot better. But it also is kind of like, it helps leaders in their own, you know, what I call self-leadership, right? Like, how are you managing yourself um, and what are you bringing into it? And how do you, to your point, be intentional? And so let's say that a leader is like feeling overwhelmed, is burnt out. A psychology would just say, oh, hey, um, let's talk about your emotions or let's talk about the past and how that's affecting you, which is cool and really helpful. But neuropsychology is like, hey, here's how your cognitive um, performance or here's how neurologically things are affecting the rest of you. And maybe that is how we, one of the ways that we fix it. So when we talk about like, hey, when you sleep just for four hours a day for the last three years, <laughs> That we're not just talking about psychology. We're talking like really demystifying to that leader. 
here's what neurologically has been happening in your brain for the past three years. And that leads to this, and that leads to cognitive change, that leads to emotional regulation. I think you almost create this visual for the person of their full self, the complexity, but also almost like they finally realize they're not as mysterious or unpredictable as they realized they were. They're more like, no, you actually are, and you're behaving the way that, you know, a sleep-deprived body would. So a lot of it is like both for diagnosing and for problem solving, and a lot of it is also just almost to give ourselves more grace and understand, oh, okay, so here's the things that might actually support my health. So yeah, that's a very long answer, but I could talk about it all day, obviously. I know. It's so fascinating to me. And it makes so much sense when you were saying that. It does kind of give you this visual of how we are whole people. And just because we're working doesn't mean that there's only one aspect of us being present. Um, I love that you talked about like the six core needs. Would you mind sharing what those are if you have them off the top of your head? Oh, yes. <laughs> They're my favorite. They're, it's a really helpful framework. Um, so the the six, I have this acronym that I came up with, which is biceps, like, you know, your arms. Mm-hmm. And they that's mostly just so that it was an easy acronym to remember. Um, they're not really in the order of importance to each person. So the six are um, belonging. So that's the B. And the I is for improvement, or that's like a sense of progress. Um, I often tell people, if you've ever been in a job where you felt like you were just doing the same thing every day, and you really couldn't see how you were making things better for yourself or for others, maybe that was one of the core needs that started feeling threatened. Um, the third one, so the C is choice. Some of us call it just autonomy, right? Decision-making power. And then the E is equality, aka fairness. Pretty important one. And that leads us to the P, which is predictability. Obviously, with the pandemic, um, predictability and certainty just went out the window, and it makes sense why we're all so tired or exhausted. It's because we maybe it's the first time that we've had this high level of unpredictability. And that's a lot. And then the last one uh, is kind of my favorite. It's status um, or significance. Uh, it's my favorite because um, a lot of people don't think it's okay to admit that you care in how you are significant to others. Belonging is just that you matter and that you're loved. But status is like something makes you special. And we're supposed to kind of not care about that. But you know, you see uh, status is important to primates, to all kinds of other animals. Um, so it makes sense that to some degree we're scanning and protecting a little bit of that for ourselves too. So those are the six, the B-I-C-E-P-S. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing those. Yeah. I think as you were reading each one, I was like, oh my gosh, all of these are so important to me in my role. And yeah, I love how you talked about the status and significance. I don't, I think so many times in like the corporate world, like everyone's kind of chasing up that ladder to get the title, which to me feels more of the ego driven versus I do think the status and significance is important because we all want to feel like our work is impactful and contributing to the world or to the company's mission in a way that, you know, ultimately helps the people that the company serves. So, yeah. And what's lovely about the biceps is that we all need all of them to some degree. Um, For the most part, that's true. But there tends to be one or two that matter a lot more to each person. And so if status is one of those for you, like it is, it is actually one of my top three, I think it was really freeing to realize that there's a reason why I kind of um, just withered away in jobs where I was always in the background. No one knew my work. I could, you know, and rationally tell myself how my work was uh, significant and maybe it was like I've, I've worked in nonprofits for a long time, for example, but I, it still made me wither away that no one could see me and give me credit. I used status, you know, and like that I, I was visible that way. And it was so helpful to know that status was one of my top three because it helped me make way better career decisions. Um, and now that I'm a trainer, a public speaker, right, a coach, um, those environments where I get to get a little status, you know, nourished, I do really well. Like I just do my best work and that's okay. It's not that I'm taking status away from others. It's that when there is a spotlight that's kind of being shown as a focus, 
it feels nice to sometimes for me to get that spotlight, which, you know, versus for some folks listening, they might be like, please never shine the spotlight on me. <laughs> I love right. being in the background. I love that. I love it. And I'm like, cool. So status is not a huge, important one for you, right? You, you, you're very flexible on that one. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. I love this idea that we could each do this for ourselves individually and understand from a career perspective, like walking through these six and identifying what's most important to us and then making career decisions from there. I really love that concept. And I think like to your point earlier, it's really giving yourself that grace to just allow yourself to, you know, seek out those environments where you're going to thrive. Right. And I also, sorry, go on. Yes. Yes. No. <laughs> I was also thinking just how, from a leadership perspective, how you can use these as well. And I'm curious how, do you encourage leaders to, you know, set up this framework and talk about it with their employees? Or is it more for them to kind of observe how their employees are acting and behaving to understand maybe what they value out of these six? Yeah, I mean, yes and yes. I think they, what I tell managers is, um, and if folks uh, Google my name and then biceps, like the the word biceps, they can get like this little download. Because I very much um, believe that when managers use it both ways. So for example, um, I often, one of my trainings is to support managers to learn how to lead what I call a biceps quarterly check-in. And that can be one-on-one. So using one of your one-on-ones with a report to be like, hey, of the six, um, which two have been feeling really good and really nourished and they matter to you? And what were examples of that? And which two are feeling not awesome in the past quarter? And what were examples when they kind of felt the most threatened? It is one of the most fascinating uh, ways and quickest ways for managers to get to know, one, how are their reports doing and make sure to nip things in the bud versus wait until that report, um, you know, quits or starts their performance starts dropping. Like the things that actually are, are like the bad signals, but you catch it early on. And two, it when they tell you, well, here's what I mean by belonging or here's where it felt threatened, you get to know so quickly your report in a way that is helpful in the future, right? So one of uh, my reports when I was like, okay, it's our first uh, biceps quarterly check-in. I gave them the PDF in advance and I was like, here's going to be my questions. And then you'll, we'll just be talking through your answers for them. Uh, she very shyly said, okay, so one of the two that's not feeling awesome is belonging. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> because I thought of us as such a tight, um, supportive team. And what she said is like, yes, but every day I'm mostly working alone. And so when I do get contact with the rest of the team, I'm just like, eat it up. But technically, my current job is mostly me working alone for hours and hours. And so I was like, got it. If I can change something about that, I'd rather do it now and catch it early than wait until she's burnt out, she's calling in sick, um, just not performing at her best or, you know, quits. And I never knew why besides that she found a better thing. So you can both, again, diagnose, but you can also get to know each other. And of course, um, what some teams do, which I love, is they do the biceps check as a full team, as like kind of a round robin discussion where everyone shares, here's the two that are feeling great, here's examples of that, and here's two where I'm kind of concerned or I'm feeling hard, and here's examples of that. It's also one of the quickest ways to make sure that team dynamics don't go off the rails, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I love this concept. Um, I think it's so powerful. And I can imagine it just builds so much trust in between like the leaders, employees and the teams. And it almost kind of it really does create that like psychological safety at work where I feel like a lot of places, it does feel like threatening, or you might like lose your job if you're too honest about, you know, sentiments around do I belong? Um, I can imagine that this is an amazing tool to build that trust amongst teams. Right. Versus having a, you know, um, a conversation with your coworker or with your report, or I mean, even with like your partner, like your romantic partner, if, you know, if you're like, Hey, how's work going? Or like, Hey, how's our relationship doing? How are they going to answer? Great. Fine. Especially if it's a manager report relationship or like a senior and more junior report position where there's a power differential, 
of course the person, if you ask them, how's it going, they're going to be like, it's great. Because <laughs> no one wants right. to be the complainer. I mean, you know, it's uncomfortable and it's scary because you're not sure how that will affect your job. But if your boss or your partner or your coworker is like, which two are feeling awesome and which two are not, it essentially is given full permission that you have to pick two that aren't doing awesome. And mm -hmm. the six already are – they allow us to talk about our full selves versus just, oh, the deadlines are hard, right, versus just transactional things we can complain about. This is like belonging is hard. Fairness is feeling hard. Predictability is feeling hard. It's like that's our whole selves, right? Because, again, the brain's always scanning for them. So, yeah, so, mm -hmm. so helpful. Yeah, I think this is amazing. And I'm thinking about how this would be great for me to implement as well. I mean, it's, I guess, from a leadership standpoint, how do you then, if you get that feedback of, oh my gosh, this person doesn't feel like they belong, and what kind of, or maybe like one or two steps that a leader could be thinking about to help that employee feel like they belong more? Right. I mean, the first most important thing um, about biceps in general, but in, in particular, that example is never presume that you can force another human to feel one of the core needs the way you do. So if in that relationship with my report, she said belonging is feeling hard and she explains, well, what I mean by that is for hours and hours I'm working alone. And I'm like, oh, I love that because then when you do connect with people, you've gotten time to rest, da, da, da. That is not the right response. Right? Essentially what I'm telling her is like, oh, you're doing it wrong. You do get plenty of belonging. Look at our team. Look how supportive everyone is. Or presuming that because I only need an hour a day of team time, that's what she needs. And that should be enough. And so one is do not um, project your own bicep stuff at all onto another human ever. Instead, be like, whoa. Get really curious. Be like, wow, look at the way that you are a unique human being. For you, one hour is insufficient. And two, working for long periods, right? And so what I would do is one, be like, honor that. Be like, I hear that. Okay, that's so helpful to know. Like really validate that. Thank you for telling me straight up what's happening. Cool. Secondly, go into a mutual brainstorming mode. Do not own it as the manager, right? That it's all up to you to fix this thing. And do not give it fully just to your report because they may not have as many options available to them as, as you can think of. So actually say, hey, so what are some ways that, you know, like one of the, actually, sorry, I forgot. There's a second really important question, which is ask them how bad. So my favorite way to do that is to say, okay, this is so helpful. Thank you so much. Okay. So let's say on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is, it's the worst thing ever. I feel like dying inside. And one is, no, it's actually not that bad. It's just a thing I'm kind of, it's not great. Where would you say that is right now, right? In this particular case, the employee essentially said, it's like an eight. And so depending on what they answer, it's not that the number is a ton of data. Obviously, an eight is very much data. But the key thing is to be like, okay, so in this case, this tells me so much more than just, oh, belonging is an issue. This belonging is really, 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 really getting in the way right now of this person performing is my guess. So then the third question is, okay, so what are some ways that we could get that from eight, I don't know, to like a six in, in just the next week or two? Like let's, this is an eight. That is not okay. I do not want you to continue with that. That's awful. How might we do that? And so what you're doing is now you're brainstorming mutually with the other person so that you can find some ideas that might mean you you reconvene in, you know, in a day or two and in a week or two. But either way, what I have found is there's oh, like 90% of the time a solution. And you can think about the short-term solution in the next week or two. How do we make this a little better for you? And you can also think about long-term like, hey, in this particular case, we did find some helpful short-term solutions. But more importantly, I said let's also think long-term because this job is always going to be a lot of hours of alone time. There isn't a way for me to really change that anytime soon. So what happens if we coach you to a role that is a lot more appropriate where you're getting all that lovely social time? 
And in that conversation, which had happened weeks later, uh, she said she started crying, and she said, "She was like, I like I hit a very sensitive spot." And she said, "I've actually wanted a different position for a long time. I just didn't think I could afford it." So I was like, "Okay, I am here. We're going to figure it out." And what we found is that essentially, I coached her out of the job. Like I coached her out of the company. What she wanted was something that was like so much more like massively social, like just constantly interacting with like 30 or 40 people. That is really literally what she said. And I was like, whoa, that's not the job. I don't know where to find 30, 40 people. <laughs> that's not the job. Cool. Let's create a runway. We're going to take six to eight months. Um, how does that sound to you? We will get you to a place where you can transition out of this job in a way that's financially stable for you and gets you to honestly a different career where you can do something really different than this very lonely job, you know? And she did. She totally found it. She's great. She's doing great. That's amazing. I love that story. And thank you for sharing that. I think there were so many gold nuggets and everything you just said. And I love this idea of brainstorming together. Yeah. I think sometimes as a leader, it can sometimes feel like you need to have all the solutions and you need to fix things or, and I think it goes back to your point you said earlier about like self-leadership. I think it helps the employee as well, or the report to really understand like their own resourcefulness and how they have the answers. And sometimes it might be a little bit of a process to get to the solution. Like the person you mentioned who really wanted to be working with a lot more people. And so that's such a self-awareness to gain to really then be able to find that right fit. I mean, that what a, you know, amazing talent to want to work with 30 to 40 people, whereas some other people would just be like, I don't need that many people at all. So right. I, I think that's wonderful um, to be able to have that, you know, self-leadership, but also that partner with the leadership Right, person in that role to really help nurture you into that right place. Right, because what you don't want to do is leave the person be like, "This is on you." <laughs> right, <laughs> you will have ideas as a manager or leader or mentor. You will have ideas um, that they just won't that won't be visible to them. Right, um, and I mean like you know, analogically visible. Like they they won't have thought of it, and they're going to have ideas that you didn't realize would work because they know themselves best. So when you get matched up together and you're brainstorming together, you get the best of both worlds. You get like a wider view of what opportunities might help, but you also get a customized view to that individual, right? Because they know themselves best. So, and I think what's nice about that approach in general, right? About how to use um, the six core needs biceps to check in, how to brainstorm together, how to recognize, well, how bad is it, <laughs> right? Let's let's make sure that I understand the urgency in this, um, is that often just starting those conversations does so much for their report. I mean, I think we can all think of a time when some part of the job felt so difficult and painful for us. I don't know, somewhere in the past, right? A job that was really painful to do. And there's somewhere like no one knew and your manager never knew how awful it was versus when we finally got a manager that was like, okay, I see you. I see how hard this is. We're going to figure this out. What if it takes six months to figure it out? And you're like, it already just feels better because I'm not alone in this because I know that there might be a way out. And so I think also as managers, we presume that we have to fix everything overnight when really we forget that humans are resilient. This person has already been putting up, right, with months of this maybe or weeks of this. And so make sure that they're okay with the timeline of how long this might realistically take to really change or to make significant progress on. But do not underestimate that often what the, the first thing and the second thing and the third thing that the employee needed is just to be seen, to feel validated that they're not, you know, I don't know, they weren't making it up. Um, and, and to feel kind of in partnership that they've got a buddy, like you said. They're not on their own about it anymore. That's huge for humans. Huge. It is. Yeah. And I think we sometimes forget that too. I mean, it's that whole thing. If you just say how you're feeling out loud, like all of a sudden it doesn't feel as heavy and it's sometimes the simplest thing, but we forget to do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a great point. And I know another element to your leadership development and trainings is really thinking about the DEI lens 
And you talk a lot about DEI and leadership development not being sub- separate subjects. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from you more about that and kind of how you position that. I mean, I agree with you. It's very much integrated, but I'd love to hear from your perspective more on that topic. Yeah. I mean, the reason I end up having such an equity and inclusion focus to begin with in my work is because I was a management trainer. I was a leadership development person. And I recognize this is about five years ago that I couldn't really do the job if I didn't know more about equity and inclusion and diversity. I just was like, you know, when like you're like, oh, wait, I think I've reached an edge that is really like to my skill set that is really important and I shouldn't keep going until I address this, this new edge. And so I decided I'll just focus for two years and really go deep on that and then return to management leadership development. And so technically that was five years because it really just took that long for me to be like, really, I need to understand this in different ways. And so what I, what I came back with from those five years of just research and, and doing the work and being in the field with, with uh, companies was, okay, I see now why this matters to be integrated at every, in every way, right, into how we build systems and procedures and policies and management support networks. One, turns out, the thing that we kind of know but we don't say out loud enough is incredibly true, which is that all of us are pre-wired. We are born pre-wired to be ethnocentric or be and or have like in-group, out-group bias. It's very strong, uh, like really, really strong. We're pre-wired for it. Just because we're pre-wired for it doesn't mean, however, that that we can't do anything about it, right? And so the second thing is more and more as managers, as leaders, we have this global and diverse workforce. That's just that's just reality, which means we are leading teams that are racially, ethnically, gender, like in so many ways different than us. And that is a good thing. And that is just the future. And so when you combine those two things, how am I going to be a good manager of my teams if I technically only know how to manage the white dudes? <laughs> or like if I technically only know how to manage the ladies, right, in my case. So really, to me, equity and inclusion being incorporated isn't because it sounds good or because that way you hit two birds with one stone. It's simply because you wouldn't consider yourself a good manager if you're like, yeah, but I really only know how to manage white dudes. You'd be like, what? How are you? That's not a good manager, right? And two, because you know that intention, wanting to be equally supportive to all individuals is insufficient. It's important. But ethnocentrism being pre-wired in us, these biases being so deep in our brain, means that we need to share tools and use tools as managers that essentially mitigate for that bias. They mitigate it, they prevent it where they can, and, and then when they can't prevent it, they minimize the harmful effects of it. And so it's just like it's every everything we do as managers when we're supporting professional development for someone, when we are thinking about promotion decisions, when we are giving someone feedback and evaluating them, every single one of those moments is porous to bias, even when we don't mean for them to be, right? I don't train any managers who are like, I'm cool being biased. <laughs> All the managers are trained are like, I don't mean to be biased. So what? What do you mean I'm still biased? Like, it's cool. I got some tools for you. We're going to figure this out. So yeah, I don't know if that helps, but that's been my conclusion. No, I think it's such an important piece of it. And I love that you do give people tools because I think it's one of those things that's ongoing. It's not you just do a couple trainings and then, like you said, there's no more bias and you've got it and you can manage anybody. And, you know, to your point, like the world is going to be a global and diverse team. I mean, we're it's got to be to continue to nurture everyone that's here on this planet. And so... I love that you make the point to really make sure that leadership development is also through the lens of understanding each person's background and who they are. Right. I, th- I think um, what what sounded so simple, but it really blew my mind at the time, was that even as I thought, you know, the way I thought of myself as a manager, I've been doing social justice since I was 14. I mean, no joke. I've been like an activist since like, I don't know, I picked up a history book and I was like, What? What? You know, like I I think of myself as just having such a long history with 
caring about equality. And it was, it blew my mind the more research I did that that intention and that caring about justice and equality didn't change that I might be evaluating, um, especially the busier that managers are, the busier that the, the cognitive brain is kind of distracted, the more likely that we default to some of these biases. And all this research that showed that the intention is so insufficient because once we get busy, as all managers are, um, and we're thinking about you know this person versus that person, that by age, by race, by gender, we are going to simply process the data that we observe from them differently. And then we also make conclusions about that data differently, all based on race, gender, you know, age, some of the big factors. And so that later when I go and make a really important decision like promotion, it is no wonder that maybe I have a pattern to who, who I keep promoting. And I think when I learned that and I looked back in the past 10 years of management, my own management, I was like, I do kind of have a pattern. Oh my God, <laughs> right? So I, I, that's why I think it's so important is because the I can't like will myself to not have a bias. It's really easy, however, to simply use management tools that built in prevention and mitigation for that bias. It's really different, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's such an important call out there. And I mean, again, you talked about like the intention behind, you know, making sure that you are using these tools and becoming self-aware. And I kind of want to tie this into like the Black Lives Matter movement that really came to everyone's forefront in 2020. And we saw a lot of companies kind of swing like immediately into these like Black Lives Matter statements or DEI commitments, hiring DEI directors. And I think part of me has been thinking a lot about, you know, how are these companies staying accountable to it? And if it was the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, with George, the murder of George Floyd, like if that was the thing that made you say we need to have a commitment, I mean, I also question, you know, where is your intention around building diverse teams? But how do we really stay accountable to that framework? Especially as you said, you know, managers, we get busy, leadership teams get busy. How do you kind of start to bake this in and really stay accountable? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's really funny is people already know how to do it. They just, they know, if if you ask any leader, hey, what's uh, a really important priority that you set five years ago? What was that? And they'll answer something like, oh, we changed markets or we changed key customer base, whatever. They'll answer something, right? And be like, cool, how did you stay accountable once you decided that was a new priority? They'll, they'll often just be like, that's a weird question. We just went and did it. Like we, and they'll be like, okay, well, tell me what you did. Like, what is it that you did to make sure that you really followed through on that priority of a new market segment, whatever. And they'll just start talking essentially about project management, right? And like, oh, we assigned a team. We gave them a timeline. We gave them deliverables. We had a hypothesis that if we did X and Y, we would get X or Y market. And then we followed up to that happen or not. And then we often learned things and realized it didn't, you know, or like not really a lot. And then we iterated, repeat the process. And so what I mostly train managers and leaders is like, yeah, that's, that's what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to copy and paste that whole thing of how you totally redid your marketing approach or whatever, and you're just going to do it to this. And the, the reason that I think people get maybe tripped up and why they're like, whoa, it, it seems, this seems more complex. I'm like, well, it is and it isn't. Uh, the key thing that they really need maybe more support and um maybe just more tips around is, okay, so the first thing is you make a timeline. Okay, make a timeline. And they're like, okay, a year. I'm like, great. Um, Now what's the measurable deliverable? What's the goal? What's like the measurable goal? And that's where they're like, uh, like they can't think of it. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to walk you through this one. Um, Let's start with which one is it? Do you want to make inclusion better? let's say around race and gender, or do you want to make things more equitable in a particular part that maybe aren't super equitable or you have no idea if it's equitable? 
And that is one of the places that I've seen managers need, like have the biggest insight is they're like, wait, aren't they, don't, can't you just like do one and get the other? Like, can't we just focus on like making people feel included? And that's what we mean by equity, right? Or like, and I'm like, nope. So if you focus on inclusion, uh, that's one thing that's like, do people feel that that it's fair who is valued and who is like, who gets invited to team lunches um, or who gets to like get their opinion asked more or who gets like the compliments, right? All that stuff. That's belonging. But equity is like, how do, how much do people get paid? Is it fair how they're getting paid? Do you know if it's fair how it's getting paid? How fast are people getting promoted? Are some groups getting promoted higher, like faster than others by just demographic, i.e. race, gender, that kind of thing. Um, uh, how high are get people getting promoted from different demographics? And then professional development, like who's getting access to the best kinds of professional development? And how do you know that, right? And so I'm like, oh, so you might need to start measuring things that before you never measured. Bef- you know, with marketing, you've always measured your marketing, right? So the key thing is like, let's measure promotions by race and gender. Like just start tracking them, right? Just start tracking them. And if they're not representative of your of the US, let's say that that's where you're working or they're not representative of the number of people graduating with that degree, which is one way to kind of compare if your your numbers are fair, then clearly you have a promotions equity issue. And most companies do, by the way. Uh, like I never met a company that doesn't unless they went and did audits and changed things. So the way to stay accountable is really just to use the same framework that they stay accountable to everything else. But usually that means really understand that either professional development and or promotion processes and or compensation are not currently um, fair around race, gender. Let's just start with those two. Um, And so let's start tracking them so that you can figure out how to make them fair. And then there's lots of ways to make them fair. Which is obviously what like all the workshops that I that I teach her about is like the really specific tools that again mitigate for the bias, prevent the bias, um, and thus give everyone equal access to the good stuff, the promotions, professional development, compensation. So yeah, it's a um I think often it's not a very exciting answer <laughs> to people, right? Um very I think a lot of people want to hear, I don't know, something more conceptual. But I'm just like, no, 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 no. This is just project management, measuring deliverables. That's what we do. Just like everything else that matters. I think that's such an amazing framework. And I think it helps ground it into something that we already know. Like you said, we already know how to do it. And so there is no excuse, right? Well, the excuse excuse might be simply that um, you needed to know which measurable goals to go after right? Um, Mm -hmm. But that's never the question I get asked. And I think most people keep thinking of equity, one, as the same as inclusion, and two, they keep thinking of equity um, as a qualitative measure, like an employee survey is enough. And I'm like, no, this is, you know, go just, you can just go, you know, ask. And I, I, I do understand, um, I don't think it's because managers and leaders didn't care enough to Google it. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that. It's actually. I know that they tried Googling it. Um, I've Googled that. Like, how do we become accountable, right? And the articles that I find a lot are say things like, "Oh, you need to um, commit to supporting, you know, black employees through their career thing." And I'm like, "What does that mean?" Like how do you like get specific, right? In the way that if I Googled, how do you know if your marketing efforts are working? You would get real tactical stuff, right? You'd be like, hey, look at your analytics, make sure that you've connected your SEO. You'd get real nuts and bolts tips. And I think um, we, I think as an industry, equity and inclusion um, needs to get really tactical, and less conceptual so that we can serve managers and leaders better, right? Because they want to, they do really want to do the right thing. That's been my experience. Yeah. I love that that's your experience. I think that means we're moving in the right direction, which is very exciting. We are. We sometimes, they, 
sometimes they lose their commitment <laughs> because it's mm -hmm. been two years and it just feels just as bad, right? And so I think I understand that. I think it's really hard to stay committed to a thing that you can't tell if it's getting better. But that's, again, where measurable goals help. Because if you can see like, oh, look at that. Our promotions are actually leading to results in what our leadership pipeline looks like. Ta-da! Like, yay! Right? Like, I, I get it, right? Speaking of, um, of biceps, of core needs, leaders, turns out, are fully human and have their core needs, the six core needs, just like everyone else does. And when improvement or progress just keeps feeling threatened because no matter what they do, it still feels like they're failing. I can I get why they they want to kind of ignore the topic in the future because they're just like failure feels awful. So let's, you know, let's set them up for more success. Right. Absolutely. I love that. It's such an amazing way. Thank you for that visual and grounding it. I think that even helps me think about, you know, how do you put some of those frameworks into place to really make sure you meet your measurable goals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that we've all been experiencing is this global pandemic. And, you know, many of workplaces are still virtual. And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with your example of the individual who, you know, wasn't feeling like they were belonging because they were spending time away from the team. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious if you have any advice for leaders or teams coming together virtually and just how do we continue to kind of nurture these six biceps in the virtual world? Oh, yeah. I I could talk about this all day. Um, this one is interesting because I, I'm fascinated with how we've had two years now. I mean, that's not fair. We've had like 10 years at least that virtual meetings have been happening, right? Lots of global distributed teams were around before the pandemic. And they learned lots of, they've had at least six years of, of actually figuring out how do you onboard a new employee so that it's as effective as back when we were all in the same office. These teams way before the pandemic figured out how do you create a sense of belonging as a team and camaraderie when you're never in the same office? How do you, like all these things, they learned them. None of those lessons are being distributed widely now that everybody is in a dis distributed team as far as, you know, especially in the tech world and, and places where remote work is more possible. And so that's been really fascinating um, because some of the really tactical things that I learned from those teams, so I, I studied a, a ton of distributed teams at Etsy when I first worked with them and just asked them, like, what works for you all? You, you are in four different countries, three different time zones, and you are so tight as a team and you perform so well together. What's the secret, you know? And they taught me all kinds of things. And so there's basic things I think that now managers can do that are super low-hanging fruit. Um, but they're so simple that I, most of people don't believe me how much they work. So I'm always like, try it, then let me know if it was that tiny of an impact, right? So one of them is uh, rules for uh, camera on meetings. Like create rules as a team about camera on meetings. So one example is um, as a team, if there's if it's a one-on-one -on -one meeting, um, you default that it's phone or audio only. You just default. So the person can request, actually, can this be Zoom with cameras on because I want to screen share, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, and then the second part of that rule is if it's four or more people in a meeting, then you make sure that there's clear camera off time or you tell everyone that it's okay to go cameras off whenever they feel like it. So what the teams taught me is the reason these rules, they're so weird and tiny, right? It's like, why? What's up with cameras on? The reason they matter so much and the reason that Zoom drain is now so prevalent is because there's this part of the brain. So they didn't tell me this. They were just like, I don't know. It just helps us. We just have these rules and they just really help us hate, not hate virtual meetings. So I then went to research and was like, why do these work? Turns out there's a part of the brain that is always tracking um, when are we feeling watched? And if we, if that part of the brain is like, we are being watched right now, <laughs> like there's people are focused on us, then that part of the brain goes into overdrive, connects with all these other parts of the brain to be like, okay, be on your best effing behavior right now. Make sure you look good. Like represent yourself well right now. And also feel a little fear that you might not, right? 
because that's kind of motivating for us to be on our best behavior. In the before times, and say we way back in cave people days, this mattered. This made sense that if everyone looks and turns to you, you kind of like sit up a little, you know, you're like, okay. But often we're in these conversations where we're toggling back and forth and looking at different people and our brains can tell when no one's looking at us. So we can relax and use all those parts of the brain for actual work, actually processing people's opinions, whatever the meaning. And so when these teens were using these camera off, camera on rules, what they were essentially doing is saying, whenever possible, we will default to being cameras off so that that part of the brain isn't being used for nothing. It's actually being used to process the meeting, to make decisions, right? And so right now what we're asking is we've made some weird rule that if someone is cameras off, it's rude. I know a lot of teams feel that way. And I'm like, no, maybe they're cameras off because some part of the brain is fighting, always feeling watched. And so just build it in so it's clear when it's okay to do that. I've tried this with a few teams um, where I was like, let's try this. We're going to try it for three weeks so that you really get the hang of like the cadence of one-on-one meetings versus, you know, being phone, all this stuff. Like you really get a sense of it. All the teams have been like, whoa, that's so helpful and so tiny. So there's all kinds of things like that that I think we're not gleaning for more experienced virtual teams and then, you know, sharing them widely. I'm actually thinking of doing another public workshop. I don't normally do public workshops anymore, um, but maybe doing this one on like the psychology of virtual meetings, because I do think when we talk about burnout, it's not just because we've got kids at home, our dog is vomiting on the carpet, and like we're not used to any of those things happening while we're trying to be productive, um, as well as everything. You know, there's just so many reasons, obviously, the, the fear and the anxiety of a pandemic. I actually think it's often, um, I would guess, 20% of the burnout is how we are fully preventable. And and it's just about how we are, collab- how we're using our collaboration tools, including obviously Zoom and virtual platforms. And that's 20% is a lot. You know, if, you, if I could right now decrease your burnout by 20%, I'd take it, you know. Yeah, I find that so relatable. And I definitely notice, like after a meeting, if it's been like an hour with my camera on, like I just feel so drained sometimes, even though it was like a really great meeting, like I definitely find that I sometimes feel exhausted or I start to get like tight shoulders because I didn't realize that I was trying to position myself in a way to, yeah, make sure that I looked good or to look and present myself in the way that I want the world to see me. And so there's been a couple of times where I've gotten off a call and I was like, was I clenching my shoulder the whole time? The whole time. (laughs) The whole time. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. But that makes so much sense. And yeah, thank you for those tips. That's really amazing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I could talk to you all day long. You're just a wealth of amazing information, but I'd love for you to tell everyone where they can find more about you if they'd like to connect further. Yeah. Um, I have my website, which is palomamedina.com. Uh, that's the best way to connect or LinkedIn. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm otherwise not on social media um, because it's awesome <laughs> to not be on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that. But yeah, but um, <laughs> my website um, has a way to connect with me and then obviously LinkedIn is, is easy too. Great. I will drop that into the show notes. And I'd love to end with this question for you about intentionality. And I'm curious how intentionality shows up in your life and business. This is such a good question. Um, I think there's lots of ways for me in the past year that I've I've realized that one of the quickest ways to ensure there's intentionality and thus better, like more aligned decisions, like the decisions I'm making are more aligned with the things I care about and I'm prioritizing, right? When I'm intentional about those decisions and how does that happen? And for me, that has been by no longer rushing to make quick decisions to including about my feelings, not just about like, you know, business decisions, like 
how do I feel about my feelings, right? Like we often do that where I'm like, is this good or bad? Um, or like, oh, this new thing, this unpredictable thing just happened. What should I do? I have been surprised how many times when I force myself to be like, oh, slow down. How urgent is this actually? What actually will happen if you take no rush whatsoever and just kind of sit with it? Like maybe for like a few days and then you can come back and be like, okay, I've been surprised how much of my previous life before the pandemic um, and definitely right after the pandemic because of, of, you know, just how many things were falling apart, um, how many things I presumed there was urgency to and thus made quick and thus sometimes faulty decisions are overly intense decisions. Um, and so showing intentionality about slowing decisions and conclusions down has done so much for intentionality everywhere else in my life. Just like slow it down, you know? Um, and that might mean, you know, I don't like someone might say, oh, hey, can you take this? Can you do this keynote? Um, and it's technically, you know, a, a month that I'm really booked. Before I'd be like, oh, I have to tell them right now. And what I'm now doing is like, well, I need to figure out if I can actually say yes to that because I'm already booked. Um, so I'm going to email them back and say, hey, can I take a few days to think about it? I need to see if I've got the time, you know, if I can squeeze it in. And they're always like, yes, <laughs> take the time you need. We'll need to know in two weeks. And I'm like, great. And I take that time. I slow it down. And often I'm like, actually, no, I shouldn't do it. You know, or, oh, here's how I can't do it that week. But what if I ask him about November? You know, whatever. Such better decisions being made since then. So yeah, that's my tip. I don't know if it helps. Oh, that was such a powerful answer. I love it. And I find that relatable too. I think that's also something I've been thinking about. It's so, I don't know. I feel like the world was moving so fast before the pandemic and we kind of got to take this collective deep breath, not the ideal scenario to be doing that in, but you know, the cause of it. But I do think we were able to kind of take a step back and start to ask those questions of like, is everything just urgent? And that's one of the things, you know, the whole purpose behind holistic marketing is to really take that step back and you can easily get into this place of like, do, 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 everything needs to be done yesterday. And this is a fire. Social media moves so fast. I need to be in the front lines of that. And really it's like, if we can take that breath and really sit with things for a little bit, like that is when we can move forward with intention and it often gets us to where we want to go faster. So I just, I love that you brought that up. It's something I'm always working on with myself too, and um, especially with work, but I'm trying to be better with my personal life too. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I think I want to honor also that I think for, for some of folks, right, the past two years have, haven't been in any kind of deep breath. It's actually been doing twice the job at home when you're also caretaking. Um, or like for me, it was like my business falling apart. Um, I joke with, a, with, which was the retail store, right? I joke with, uh, at the time I was joking with people that um, I was like, yeah, it's really interesting. In two weeks, I went from being a business owner um, that worked X number of hours a week to get X amount of money. And now I work twice that amount to get a fourth of the money. <laughs> like what happened? Um, and that, so I, I think when, for me, it was because things got so intense, got like I was on four hamster wheels at once. It's, it's because that happened that I was like, I can't keep going at this pace. And so whether someone was like, oh, because of the pandemic, I kind of have been forced to slow down and do less, or whether it's because of the pandemic, I've been doing three times the work for a third of the productivity or the output, um, I think slowing down is never, never a bad idea. <laughs> you know, trickier, right? but I, I swear by it as someone who, who was on those four of those hamster wheels at once. I get it. I get you. Yes. And thank you for honoring that too. It has not been a deep breath for everyone. For everyone. Those for a lot yes, of, you know, right. for a lot of folks. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being here. You are just a wonderful human with a wealth of knowledge. And I think you just added so much value today. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me as a guest. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to be the first to know when a new episode is available. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on LinkedIn at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out charlottechipperfield.com for more resources and to learn more about holistic marketing.